Hi, everyone. A quick note before this episode begins. We're going to have a live event again this year at Neshota House Theological Seminary in Wisconsin, and it takes place on July 27th, so later on this month. And we're going to have a live event with Drew Johnson about his book, Biblical Philosophy, a Hebraic Approach to the Old New Testaments. And it will be, again, at Neshota House Theological Seminary in Wisconsin on July 27th from 6.30 to 9.30 p.m. We'd love for you to be there. It's a free event, and it includes food and drinks. So what's not to like about that? It'd be great to connect with a lot of you in person. And uh, if you want to find out about that and to register your spot for the event, go to onscript.study forward slash events. And there you will find all the information you need. Okay, hope to see some of you there. Welcome to the OnScript Podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at OnScript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash OnScript. Welcome back, OnScript listeners. I'm Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. I'm a host with Matt Bates, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, Chris Tilling, Amy Brown-Hughes, and Jules Martinez-Olivieri. Special thanks to Ed Hackey for producing OnScript and Biblical World, our other podcast, and also to Rebecca Terhune and Alan Files for all the work that they do. If you'd like to share the word about OnScript, you can give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this. Um, you, for instance, you, uh, another option is you could you could mail a letter to President Biden if you're in the U.S. or to whomever might be in leadership in your country. Uh, for those writing to the White House, the address is the White House, 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, Northwest, Washington, D.C., 20500. And it says on the website that if you write a letter, please consider typing it on an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper. So I guess you've got options there, but consider that. Uh, if you handwrite your letter, please write it as neatly as possible with an ink pen, um, as opposed to other, other sorts of pen. Um, include your return address in your letter, as well as your envelope. And if you have an email address, please share that too. And I figure if, if Biden gets, say, you know, 10 to 12 letters from our listeners, He's bound to pay attention. Um, you know, that's going to catch his attention. That's 10 to 12 potential voters um, or people that he'd want to get on his side. Um, and he's bound to include it in his na- next State of the Union address. And, and if he mentions OnScript in his State of the Union address, um, I, think, I think it's going to go viral. So thanks for your support. Thanks for listening. And we hope you enjoy this episode. Until the 16th century, so says Professor Alistair McGrath, the Western theological tradition was understood justification primarily as a making righteous through the impartation of an inherent righteousness to a believer. Although some early Protestant writers retained this understanding of justification, Protestantism as a whole coalesced around the notion of justification as a forensic or judicial event in which the believer is reckoned as righteous or accounted righteous, tending to conceptualize the process of becoming righteous as regeneration or sanctification. Uh, So that's a a summary of uh, where the conversation is going today. I have Professor Alistair McGrath with me here. Uh, Welcome to OnScript, Alistair. It's nice to be with you. Thank you for having me. 
The topic of conversation uh, will be Alistair McGrath's monograph, Eustitia Dei, A History of the Christian Doctrine of Justification, uh, which is now available in an extensively revised fourth edition. So if you've never had the chance to encounter uh, this excellent work uh, by uh, Professor McGrath, I would encourage you uh, to uh, go ahead and uh, get a hold of Eustitia Dei. Now, Alistair, it says something about the monumental status of Eustitia Dei in the field of historical theology that it has now reached a fourth edition. At various stages of my own educational journey, I read the second edition in parts. The third edition, I think I read twice in its entirety because it, I felt like it was one of those books that not only repaid a careful rereading, um, but also I wanted to own it, right, in the sense that uh, I didn't want to just intellectually encounter it. These topics are important to me in my ongoing work, uh, and I wanted to master it. I don't think I've succeeded, uh, as it's a, it's a dense book. But uh, all that's to say, I was excited to see a fourth edition, and when it came out, I anticipated it would be a minor revision. Um, but that's not the case at all. Uh, this is a major reworking. Uh, the majority of the manuscript has been rewritten extensively. And obviously that you felt um, the desire to recraft it suggests that you felt it was worth your while. How about can we just begin with the initial story? Uh, what drew you into this topic in the first place? This would have been back in the 1970s, right, uh, that you first began working on this, and you've sat with this material for over 40 years. So um, lead us into your initial journey. Well, um, my journey basically is that of a scientist who became a theologian. Um, and after I studied theology at Oxford for a bit, I wanted to do some research. And so I began to think, what am I going to do research in? And I noticed that some leading theologians like Jürgen Miltman, Wolfhard Pannenberg, began by cutting their teeth on significant historical theological investigations. So I thought, that's what I'm going to do. So um, I decided to work on Martin Luther. And I worked with a guy called Gordon Rupp at Cambridge at that time. Gordon Rupp was England's leading Luther expert. And I was really looking at the continuity between Luther and the late Middle Ages. And so really what happened was three major writing projects emerged from that. One was the origins of Luther's reforming theology. Another was a more general book on the kind of way in which the reformers did theology set against the medieval and Renaissance backgrounds. But the third, was to look at the development of the doctrine of justification, not simply in Luther, but from the word go to the present day. And that hadn't really been done before. The near, nearest um, would, would have been uh, uh, Ritchell's book in the 1860s, but that, that was really not a complete study. And actually, Ritchell had some rather odd theological prejudices, which made, made his work actually less, less valuable than it should have been. Um, so basically, I, I found myself um, exploring this book, and it took a very long time to research and to write. And the first edition came out in the mid-80s, and then we, we kept revising it. The reason we kept revising it was because scholarship kept changing, you know, the, the, because basically when I was writing this in the 80s, the scholarly consensus on a lot of things was fairly well established, and then it moved, so I had to move as well. But also, I was doing more and more research myself and beginning to establish some themes I felt had not been well enough looked at. So basically, you're looking at a topic that I've been working on more or less since the 1980s, and I still return to it. So it's a, it's an ongoing love, if you like. 
Yeah. Um, well, there's no doubt about that. And yeah, the first edition, I think, published by Cambridge University Press, like maybe 1986 or something like that in two volumes. So you're right, this is this massive project. Uh, and I think over the years, sometimes you've expanded, sometimes contracted and uh, looking at the various editions uh, and how you've treated sections. Uh, so uh, even the previous editions retain value as sometimes you have more expanded treatments. Um, can you speak a little bit more than to, um, you said this has been an ongoing love affair of 40 years, right, that you've had uh, with this material. Um, why do you think that's the case? Like, what, what, yeah, if you could um, weigh your own heart here, what, why the passion for this in particular? Because I think it's important when you're doing theology to find out where you've come from. In other words, you, you, you're recognizing this is not a question that you are the first person to think about. People have read Paul before you. They've thought about Paul. They've thought about these big questions. And I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to, in effect, just say, here is how the thinking on this has developed. Not saying that this episode or that episode is right, but saying, let's be absolutely clear. Here's what the history is. And then we can begin to do some theological reflection once we establish what the history is. So, if you like, although I am a theologian with my own interests and agendas, in writing this book, what I tried to do was to say, let's just tell it straight. In other words, try and keep as clo close to the sources as possible and tell what I saw. I think that was a very important point to me. I tried to set any personal convictions I had to one side. That's always hard to do, do as I'm sure you know, but I felt it was important to do in this particular case. Well, it's obviously a fraught topic, right? Um, as uh, it's it's something that's fractured the church, right? Uh, understandings of uh, different understandings of justification. Uh, so it is hard to, um, yeah, to set aside uh, personal agendas, and we all realize we can't fully do that uh, as we're immersed in narratives. Uh, but we we do that to the degree we can, to be fair. Um, and uh, you've kind of anticipated my next question in some ways, uh, which was, you know, we we many of us at least are impatient biblicists, right? Uh, we're scripture loving Protestants uh, committed in one way or another to sola scriptura, right? And um, many of those in that camp, including myself, I suppose, sometimes want to say, well, why don't we just cut to the chase? What does scripture teach about that? Isn't that the really important thing? Um, why study the development of doctrine of, uh, of, of justification in church history? Now, you've already mentioned, you know, we're not the first to read Paul. Uh, yeah, do you want to expand on any comments there? Well, I think it's very important to note that um, many leading th theologians who have written on justification have been very, um, very concerned to do justice to the biblical text. And that's why I think it's very important to note that writers like Augustine and Luther and countless others were all biblical commentators. And in fact, they were, they were really wrestling with this text. Now, the question of justification is really quite complicated because Paul uses the word justification. And, you know, you and I, when we're writing, we'll very often use footnotes like, i.e., we mean this, or uh, put brackets, you know, justification, i.e., this. But Paul doesn't do that. He uses the word. He does not explain what he means by it. He assumes his readers will either know or have a good idea of what is. And yet, as the history of this whole discussion makes, makes very, very clear, Paul's readers down the centuries have not been able to agree on what he means by this term. And that's one of the reasons why studying the history of this doctrine of justification is so fascinating and so frustrating, because so much depends on how you understand the word, and yet the word is not itself defined in the key writings which, in effect, brought this term to such prominence. So that, that means, in effect, there's always debate, A, about how 
how this happens, but B, what it means. Yeah, um, absolutely. This is a, a, just a quote from uh, your own work, page 29 here, that I thought was uh, appropriate uh, for, for the, kind of weighing some of this. You say that it is impossible and inappropriate to make sweeping judgments about what Paul really meant about justification without a detailed study of how he has been interpreted in the past, a task which certainly discloses some rich exegetical possibilities, but at the price of highlighting the provisionality of such interpretations. Um, so uh, you kind of point the need uh, to, to all of us in the church uh, who would uh, want to trace Paul well uh, to do serious business with church history. Um, let me uh, just, uh, for, for the sake of uh, the audience here, uh, introduce you a little bit more fully. Um, Professor Alistair McGrath is professor at University of Oxford, and he is the Andreas Idrios Professor of Science and Religion and the director of the Ian Ramsey Center for Science and Religion and a fellow of Harris Manchester College. Uh, Professor McGrath has written countless books. Um, uh, do you know how many? Uh, no, but it's quite a lot. Too many, no. I think. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite a lot. At some point, you stop counting, I suppose, uh, both on the popular and the academic level. Um, some of the more uh, popular recent um, books uh, involve, uh, for instance, Inventing the Universe, Why We Can't Stop Talking About God, Science, and Faith. Uh, deep Magic, Dragons, and Talking Mice, as this uh, speaks to uh, your abiding interest in C.S. Lewis. Uh, you've also written A Life of C.S. Lewis. Uh, and then on the academic uh, end of things, you've already mentioned a couple of your books uh, that were foundational, um, I think, to uh, the ongoing quest to understand the Reformation era well, uh, Luther's Theology of the Cross, which was published by uh, Blackwell uh, in 1985, uh, Dei, the book we're talking about now, The Intellectual Origins of the European Reformation, uh, published by Blackwell as well, it looks like. Uh, and then uh, fr from there, countless other academic books and um, also theology textbooks uh, as uh, I've uh, sometimes led students through your Christian theology, uh, for instance, uh, and um, and the reader companion that goes along with it. Um, so certainly um, yeah, you are a well-published uh, scholar and, uh, and diverse in terms of your interests, and we all appreciate that. Um, well, let's start off then um, uh, in terms of thinking through the doctrine uh, of justification historically with St. Augustine, uh, and I think you appropriately call him the fountainhead, right, is the term you use, uh, because he's the one probably who first formalizes um, any kinds of theological reflections, things we find before that tend to be idiosyncratic uh, comments here and there, uh, where he has a more systematic discussion on justification. Um, given he's such a pivotal figure then, um, what maybe we'll work backward from him and and then forward in time from him as well. Maybe we'll go back to the patristic era a bit. Uh, but let's start with him. And certainly his ideas about justification are bound up with his ideas of free will, of faith, and election. Uh, and some of those ideas that Augustine held, they shifted over his own lifetime. So... Um, how about we begin with, well, where did St. Augustine begin? Why did some of his ideas shift? And how did that impact our understanding of justification? Well, I think Augustine's ideas changed over time. And I think there's an ongoing debate in the scholarly literature about whether there's one Augustine or two Augustines, and if there's a transition, when it took place and why. And I think we, we have to be careful about this because um, scholarly opinions shift over time. And it's very, very difficult to um, avoid getting trapped in the way scholars think at the moment. But from my own perspective, I think what is so important about Augustine is that, A, he, he thinks that 
you constantly talk about justification. It is articulated in a context of sin and grace, of human freedom and divine sovereignty. So actually the whole question of how it happens is really important for Augustine, but also the question of what it is. And one of the reasons why it's so important for Augustine is because, of course, there is this uh, cultural context of debates about what is justitia all about? What does it mean to be a righteous person, both in Roman secular context and in Christian context? And what Augustine is really trying to do is articulate a Christian public theology in which, in effect, Christianity is able to set out its own vision of what the good life is and how it is meant to be lived. So we need to realise this is actually quite important for Augustine. Um, He does give a lot of emphasis, and this is because it's part of his overall theological vision. So I think that's one of the reasons why it's so important. One of the questions that uh, really becomes significant here is Augustine is quite emphatic that the Latin word justificatio, which is a late Latin word, and therefore, in effect, you have to interpret what what it means, it means to be made righteous. Justificatio is justum facere, to be made righteous. And in making that uh, statement, Augustine almost seems to be avoiding going out on a limb on his own. He seems to be assuming that his readers would agree with this, and more than that, that they would expect him to kind of chime in with what other Christian writers were, were saying, particularly in the Greek-speaking end of the Mediterranean. So we, we have reason to think that Augustine here is echoing the kind of ideas you find in Greek-speaking writers, um, but they, they tend to link this with a sort of um, a complex ideology of of deification. And Augustine doesn't explicitly do that, although that theme is there in the background. So I think it's best to see Augustine as a freestanding thinker who's thought this thing through very carefully, even though there are areas where you and I would say, you know, there's a little bit of unclarity here and there. Augustine will come back to that. But for me, Augustine gives us this um, grand vision of justification, which I think really is the first time we find this in the Western theological tradition. And this, um, you know, obviously this uh, St. Augustine's decision, you know, to um, to handle justification in terms of a making righteous uh, ends up being incredibly important as the tradition develops, as that becomes the key point of controversy, right? Whether it's a, de- a declaration of righteousness or whether it involves more transformational holistic ideas. Um, and uh, do I detect in, in, in terms of reading between maybe your third and your fourth edition, um, as you reassess the patristic material, um, it seems that um, perhaps your own ongoing engagement with that literature has nuanced your views somewhat. Uh, And I think in particular how you're you're constructing justification over against works of the law uh, and the contribution of Matthew Thomas. Uh, And then uh, perhaps, as you you already alluded to, um, ideas of theosis or divinization that were important soteriological models in the East. do you see more evidence for um, transformational rather than declarative ideas in the patristic literature now as you've had the time to reassess uh, this ongoing scholarly project? Let's start with the works of the law piece. I kind of asked two questions at once, I realize. Um, How does our understanding of justification in the early era as we look prior to Augustine, uh, and we think about the question of works of the law, is, does that bound what justification could mean uh, in that early era in important ways as we think about the ongoing development of the doctrine? 
Well, I think one of the problems here is we always read the literature of the past in the light of contemporary debates. In other words, what I mean is that the kind of debates that are going on around us right now very often influence the way in which we read church history. And certainly, um, when I first began to do this, um, which is before really the new interpretation of Paul took off, um, there was still this interest, you know, what does this phrase, the works of the law, mean? How has it been interpreted? And there was sort of a growing feeling of unease that maybe maybe the, the kind of Luther's glossing of this as sort of a, a, a works righteousness by which you achieve justification, maybe that actually isn't quite what is being got at there. And uh, obviously I was influenced by the literature of the time and reported accordingly and since then there's been an explosion of interest in this field and the result is not only have I had to revisit the primary sources, I've had to read a huge second literature as well and make judgment calls on what seems to be right and what seems to be wrong. What I would say is that there does seem to be a shift in the consensus. I think the shift in the consensus really is that certainly early Christian commentators on Paul do tend as a whole to see the Pauline phrase works of the law to mean something like um, Jewish legal or ceremonial requirements which were seen as markers of standing within the covenant, that you did not need those, that, that in effect these were, these were useful but in fact they could be negative because you, you, you fetishize them and so I think we see that beginning to take place. So I, I think that I've been sensitized to that because as, as you, I'm sure you will know, very often um, contemporary theological debates sensitize you to earlier discussions. So you go back and say, I'm going to read this again in the light of that earlier discussion and see if that helps me make sense of what's happening now. And I find that to some extent. Now, from what I've said in response to your question, I think your next question might be, supposing we revisit this in 50 years' time, what's going to happen then? And, you know, A, I won't be here, and B, I don't know. <laughs> but it does remind us, I think, that, you know, all historical theology is done um, on the basis of a literature which is getting bigger and more massive all the time. Because people do wonderful PhD theses which are published, and you've got to read them. And very often they will turn up nuances or they'll note things that have been neglected before. And all of this feeds into your ongoing reflection on this question, which is why the fourth edition of your City of Day is bigger than any of the previous ones, because there's so much literature to take account of. Yeah, well, it's bigger, and you also cut uh, some some portions from the previous yeah, and added uh, added a ton. Hmm. So um, yes, it's a very um, yeah a very significant reworking in that way. Well, I appreciate your reflections on the provisionality of our conclusions here with regard to historical theology, as it is an ongoing conversation, and um, I, I hope that doesn't make us hopeless, right? In the sense of um, of uh, spiraling toward the truth, um, but it, uh, but on the other hand, um, yeah, I think that that it does help us to be more aware of how our own contextual horizon. Horizons uh, might be fronting certain kinds of questions that may not be the best questions to ask of our texts. Well, uh, 
I, I wanted to then, um, so uh, as we kind of um, think about the patristic period um, and then um, kind of um, look back from St. Augustine, when we move forward in time um, uh, from St. Augustine, um, obviously there's enormous developments in the Middle Ages, uh, but Thomas Aquinas is of particular significance. Um, and uh, he, uh, if we want to maybe um, cut to the chase, um, it would seem that we might have some implicit process ideas in Augustine, um, but in the Middle Ages, process uh, in terms of describing justification becomes very important, or there's a formalization of the process. Um, can you lead us through how um, that was formalized? Perhaps you could use Thomas as an example, uh, or perhaps other thinkers uh, you might want to gravitate toward. Uh, but how did we end up, uh, what does the process look like on the eve of the Reformation? Uh, well, that's that's actually um, more complicated, but I guess maybe we'll start with Thomas as he, he represents the Dominican wing, and there's other things going on with the Franciscans. Um, but uh, yeah, how would you how would you want to speak about how Thomas summarizes uh, the process? Well, I think the key thing to appreciate here is that um, in the Middle Ages, Augustine was really seen as a theological sig- uh, figure of huge reputation, and therefore most people find that they have to engage him. He's seen as reliable, but he's also seen as incomplete. And that, I think, is a very important element because, in effect, it means that uh, people will say, Let, let's, let's run with Augustine on the main elements, but we think he needs formalization. We think he needs more systematization. And, for example, OK, he says August, uh, justification is about making righteous, but that, that needs nuancing. That needs to be unpacked more. And so initially we have, um, if I can put it very crudely, um, so a threefold understanding of this process by which justification happens. You begin with the infusion of grace, then there's a transformation of human free will, and then there's forgiveness of sins. And then we find a a progression in this towards um, a a fourfold scheme. And we can go into the details here, but I I think the key point to make really is that that there's there's this desire to systematize, that in effect, it's not enough to say it's just about becoming righteous. It is there are stages in this process process. And interestingly, the stages in this process are linked with the sacramental economy of the church. And that's a very important point, because one of the things that I I noticed more in doing this edition than in previous editions was how, um, if you like, the technical discussion of justification really becomes increasingly aligned with the actual institutional practice of the medieval church. In other words, the so-called sacramentum mortuorum, the sacraments of the dead, um, you know, baptism and uh, penance really do become integrated into this. And that's one of the things where I think the reformers um, began to get a bit nervous because they felt that in effect, um, God was being kind of way inhibited by or limited by the structures and procedures of the church. Now, my own feeling is that really what the medieval writers were doing were correlated. In other words, simply saying, look, we can map this process onto what's happening in the life of the church. I think some of the reformers were nervous. This was actually formally making the church essential to the whole business of transformation. So I think that's a very important point to uh, bring out. Now, you ask how this kind of way leads into the Reformation. Well, I think the answer is that um, uh, there are many aspects of this theology of justification, which I think the Reformers would have found inoffensive. 
But what we need to be aware of is that there's theology and there's theology. And that there are two things we need to highlight here. One is there are trends in the later Middle Ages, which really, I think, although they were really presented as formalizations of some things, actually created the impression that humanity had a much greater role in their own justification than someone like Aquinas would have allowed. And secondly, you have a kind of popular theology. I think this is perhaps the most important point, which is propagated by preachers rather than by um, theologians. And very often, this kind way presents justification as, look, you do your bit, God does his bit. So in effect, look, uh, start being a good person and then you are justified. And of course, you can see why uh, Luther would have been rather unhappy at that, and rightly so. So I think what we need to do is to say that in many ways, what I've done primarily in this textbook is look at the more academic discussions of this. But at points, I do focus down on more popular discussions. And very often, that's where the problems begin. Yeah, as, as uh, I kind of think about like the, the appropriate, you know, kind of context for understanding justification, some of the things that have helped me in reading your book uh, to better understand what was going on is uh, pertains to the, the idea of a create, created habit of grace. Um, and uh, and then the the distinction between the congruous merit and the, the condign merit. Um, could you lead us through that? Um, what's what's meant by a created habit of grace, and why does that become an important? Um, yeah, that ends up becoming a site of controversy as as time goes on. What is that? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I think again, let, let's repeat the point that during the Middle Ages we have a kind of feeling that Augustine's vocabulary of grace of justification actually. Well, we know what he means, but it's imprecise. We need to kind of make this more accurate. And so Aquinas in particular, but not only Aquinas, says, well, look, when Augustine talks about grace, he actually seems to mean several things. So let's, let's try and untangle these streams of his thought and formalize them. So we have grace as, in effect, God's favor. It's a dispositional thing. And then we have grace as kind of a, a gift that God gives us, which is somehow located within us. And this becomes the created habit of grace. In other words, grace is something supernatural within us that is placed there by God. And it's there as, if you'd like, a, a sort of bridgehead for God to begin the work of transformation of our souls. And so for Aquinas, this is simply, in effect, um, disentangling different elements of Augustine's thought. But for other theologians, like William of Ockham in the later Middle Ages, what Aquinas is doing here is actually introducing something which doesn't really seem to be necessary. Why can God not simply convert or um, make, make somebody holy immediately? Why does he need to use intermediaries? That seems to be redundant. And so what you find is Occam saying there's no need for this, that in effect God can do this directly. And so you have a rise of what's sometimes called a personalist approach to justification. In effect, God accepts the sinner directly as an act of grace, okay? And that doesn't require ontological 
transformation. In other words, God is able to achieve directly what Aquinas says you have to do indirectly. And actually, Luther was quite influenced by that. Luther felt that God could do this directly without the need for that. So I think what we see here is an entirely understandable desire to try and kind of make more sense of Augustine, which in effect led people to make some moves which, with the benefit of hindsight, may not have been completely wise. Yeah, thank you. Um, and how about um, the condign and congruent merit? Can you can you speak to the rise of um, understandings, especially of congruent merit within the Franciscan tradition and how that... Yes. Well, again, that, that's a really good question. And again, we have this feeling, we're reading Augustine, and he, he makes it absolutely clear, justification does not happen by merit. That's very, very clear. Except, Aquinas says... And there's a tradition on this. Um, maybe merit is a complicated idea. Maybe we need to kind of way distinguish different kinds of merit. And so what Aquinas does is to say there's merit in the strict sense of the word. You do something which deserves a response. And Aquinas says that's the strict sense of the word merit, and justification is not given on that basis. It's something that God gives freely. But then, following the tradition uh, which was emerging at the time, he says there's a much weaker sense, a sort of, he calls it congruous merit. And the way this was explained to me by a Catholic theologian is, look, when you go to a restaurant, okay, and you have a meal, you've got to pay the bill. You're under an obligation to do that. But you might say, hey, I'm going to give a tip. And that's not something you're obliged to do. It's something that because you're generous, you do. So if you'd like, you're making a distinction between justice and obligation and being generous. And so there's this sense that God actually is kinder towards us than maybe the strict justice of situation demands, and therefore does things in terms of a weaker sense of merit. Not something we deserve, but something that God does because God is nice. You know, you don't deserve this, but he's going to do this. And and you can see immediately how this is open to misunderstanding and, and misinterpretation. And in fact, uh, Aquinas is more strict on this than many Franciscan writers are. Franciscans tended to emphasize the generosity of God more than Aquinas. But again, you can see how difficult it it makes to read medieval theologians, because when they say you cannot merit justification, they're really saying you can't merit justification in the strict sense of the word merit. So you need to to be aware of the complexity of the debate. And that certainly has led some people uh, astray in the past. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, if you don't mind, we're going to do a speed round here, uh, and then maybe after the speed round, we'll jump into Luther and the Reformation uh, a little bit more. Uh, and since you're probably not familiar, our speed round, uh, they're just questions that are more off the cuff. You don't need to defend your answer. In fact, we don't want you to. Uh, uh, I just ask the question, and you give your, your quick gut response to the question, and they're, they're mostly uh, they're more silly. So uh, question number one, have you ever driven a motorcycle? No. Uh, my parents were very nervous. Um, they felt I was a bit dyspraxic, and so they thought, <laughs> this is not a good idea. <laughs> What's the strangest thing about growing older? Um, the strangest thing about, about um, growing older for me, I think, is um, looking at people who are slightly older than me and, and thinking, I'm getting a bit like that. Uh. So, but I, I'm growing old graciously, I think. <laughs> 
Well, you, well, you look good. I can see you on the screen yeah, right now. Yeah, that's great. I like You're looking good. I like that. That's kind. Yeah, to make you feel even older. Um, so, uh, in in your preface to the book, you said you you uh, you were working on this in 1978. I was born in 1977. So, uh, there you go. Um, all right. Uh, another question: Is there intelligent alien life elsewhere in the universe? If there is, we don't know about. <laughs> yes. Um, What's okay? Uh, this one's a little more substantive and serious. Uh, so, uh, what's the most important theology or biblical studies book of the last fifty years? You only get to choose one. One important book in theology or biblical studies of the last fifty years. That's a hard one because I I would have gone back to the nineteen early nineteen twenties and said there's some really important stuff came out there. But it's a good question, so I I will answer it on its terms. Um in terms of my own personal theological development, I think I would have to say that Moltmann's book, The Crucified God, which I think just comes inside your age range, uh, actually really was very, very important for me because I studied that as an undergrad at Oxford and I thought to myself that that is making me think because, you know, it really, it, it was kind way, almost like liberation from very intellectualist approach to theodicy and offering me a different way of thinking about the cross, which I found really exciting. And it made me want to know more about Luther, which, of course, is something I followed through on. Well, that's great. I think we've had one other guest um, say the crucified God. It's maybe. a great book. Uh, one, it really maybe is. One other. Um, yeah. All right. Um, how about this? What's something you find embarrassing? Well, something I find embarrassing. Um, well, one one thing is people ask me how many books you've written. I don't. I don't <laughs> <You> know. know. <laughs> In fact, I, I'll tell you this. <laughs> Someone once asked me, "Hey, are you, uh, all these books you've written, have you actually, have you actually read them?" <laughs> I, I, I thought it was very, very good. But anyway, no, no. I think that the most embarrassing thing uh, I, I find is that my memory is going, uh, and of course, you know, for a book like your City of the Day, where you have to remember so much. Oh, I know. Oh, you know, that's hard. That's really hard. It is, and uh, I think everyone who does interviews and and uh, both on the giving end and the receiving end hopefully knows that we can't control all the details. Sometimes when people are interviewing me about some fine point in biblical studies that I wrote, it's like, good goodness, there's no way I can remember that. I'll have to look no, back no. and read my own footnotes, right? <laughs> uh, and, and hope that I can even remember what I was thinking at the time, right? Uh, but yes, yeah, certainly it's, a, it's a, a tremendous amount of information to try to control. Um, well, um, as we move into the time period of Luther then, um, you know, you've done a lot of work on, um, you know, both in Eustitia Dei and in your broader projects as, uh, academically as a whole on the a context for understanding Luther that emerges, that he emerges from. What are the most important points of continuity? Let's start with that, uh, with his medieval heritage, uh, and then maybe we'll talk about discontinuity. Where does he rupture? Well, I think the most important point of continuity is um, Paul is really important, Augustine is really important, and, and those are kind of way the guiding lights which govern Luther's thinking, but also establish a very strong degree of continuity with the medieval background. So the question is, how do we interpret Paul? How do we interpret Augustine? And uh, Luther is um, willing to engage with the medieval tradition, but has his has his doubts. Okay. What about the, like, uh, in terms of continuity, how much do you think the voluntarist approach, you know, of kind of the later Franciscan schools and things like that, um, you know, Occam and Scotus and others, how much, how much does that impact Luther, do you think? I think it's there in Luther. I, I think that Luther is very much saying if God wills to justify someone, then God's going to do that. And he doesn't need to use these very complex intermediate schemes. But I think it's, it's stronger in Calvin. I think that, that with Calvin, you find this given a much higher profile. And if I may say so, there's a greater theological 
logical rationalization of that in Calvin than there is in Luther. So how about then uh, rupture? Uh, as we think about what, what, is the, what are the distinctive moves that, um, where Luther ruptures with regard to his theology of justification? Well, I, I personally see the, the rupture as uh, beginning during his lectures on the Psalms, where you can clearly see him moving away from the theology he had been taught. Um, and in effect saying that this, this isn't right, you know, and, and what is really interesting is that although he's expanding the Psalter, he's finding in the Psalter the texts that will help him um, rethink the whole dynamic of grace. And that to me is very interesting. Of course, once he gets to expanding Paul's letter to the Romans, 1515-16, he is on a home run. You know, he, he really is able to bring all of this together. And I would personally say that it's during that, uh, that, that period of en- engaging Paul, we see Luther beginning to establish his own distinct identity. Now, the question is, does that mark him off completely from the medieval tradition? And the answer is yes and no, mostly no. And and the reason I'm saying that is because by this stage, Luther is still partially thinking in terms of justification as a process of making us righteous. Um, fieri est justificatio, that sort of idea, supposed to be coming. And of course, he will move away from that, but at that point, he's still there. I think it's more the consequences of this which are what moves uh, Luther in a more radical direction. And also, I think there, there is a question about, um, if I can put it like this, um, the whole sociological um, dimension of this. In other words, what was it that made Luther's own theology the trigger for a wider reforming movement when actually some of Luther's ideas have been developed by other people, but they did not have the impact that they did in the case of Luther's. But certainly I would say that Luther's well on the way to his reforming um, breakthrough um, by about 1515. Would you say that um, it's in terms of the extrinsic versus intrinsic um, kind of understandings of justification. Uh, At what point do you think Luther has a strongly extrinsic alien kind of imputation um, understanding of justification? Because that would seem to be an important fracture point, right? Where we have inherent righteousness versus an extrinsic righteousness. It's an important fracture point, and and you see this idea emerging in the lectures on Romans, so it's definitely there. Um, The question is, how big a profile does it have? I think it's there. I think it's important for Luther. But it really, in my view, and again, I must emphasize, this is simply my reading of the evidence. I'm not saying I'm right. It seems to me it really becomes significant historically in the 1520s. And that's really when Melanchthon, who I think is a more systematic thinker and is also quite well immersed in classical literature, is able to say, hey, there's a way of thinking about this, which in effect puts us in a very good place. Let's think of um, justification as the declaration of being in the right. You know, and, and that actually sorts out a lot of problems. And actually you can see Luther coming round to that even though I don't think that was how Luther himself initially thought of it. So I would say that it solidifies during the 1520s, and then, in effect, it's picked up by other reformers like Calvin, and so it becomes actually, if you like, a hallmark of the Reformation, I would say by about 1540, something like that, it really has become uh, a defining feature of the Reformation movement as a whole. And one of the things I would love to investigate, but I don't know how this happened, is how did that idea crystallize? 
normalize and become normative because it wasn't really there right at the beginning of the Reformation. It emerges. Yeah, and uh, I think you do a good job in the book of highlighting Melanchthon's contributions, and then eventually that spills over into Calvin's justification, sanctification, distinctions, uh, and uh, distinction, and that becomes very important, obviously, to ongoing Protestant systematizations. When we think about um, now uh, the Catholic, you know, what's called the Counter-Reformation, sometimes just called the Catholic Reformation, but uh, but obviously a lot of that's consolidated, at least initially with Trent. Um, uh, I think you document ably how Trent clearly misunderstands or caricatures Luther, right, and uh, is responding to um, a, a certain kind of vision of Luther as that's been mediated by rumor, uh, perhaps rather than direct engagement at times. Um, and, uh, and so uh, as Trent... Um, uh, closes down, I guess, uh, against the various heresies of the, the Reformation era. Um, to, to what degree is there still, um, well, I'm trying to think of how I want to f- frame this question, but uh, as, as, as Trent formulates its, its, um, its response and it moves against ideas of double justification ultimately, right? Um, and maybe we need to unpack what that means for our audience. Um, does that leave latitude, I guess I'm trying to think about, for ideas within the, the Lutheran camp about regeneration and justification uh, and, uh, and then within the Reformed camps, uh, justification and sanctification? Um, was Trent's response uh, to uh, to the Reformation, um, because it was a misresponse, what are our ecumenical possibilities? I guess that's what I'm really trying to aim for here in my question, uh, is what kind of ecumenical possibilities emerge knowing that there was some misfire? There was some misfire. And I, 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 I want to say that while it certainly was a misreading of Luther, actually you can see how it happened, because... Um, you know, Augustine is writing, let's say, in the early 400s. So a thousand years later, everyone is absolutely used to Augustine's idea. Justification is about making righteous. So you read Luther, you read Melanchthon. They use the word justification. For you, it means making righteous. And of course, for them, it means something different. And you can see how that really skews your reading. It makes it look as if you're, you're, you're in effect, making um, the whole business of becoming holy. Simply a matter of saying, I trust God, end of discussion. And, and they don't like that. And it is a misreading. But I'd have to say, I can see how the misreading arose. But your question is good because it's saying, how, um, how can we kind of develop that um, in terms of ecumenical dialogue? And actually, what I have found in my personal conversations is that when I say, look, Lutherans tend to think in terms of justification and regeneration, and Calvin is more in terms of justification and sanctification. But when you look at the overall frameworks they're developing, they actually map quite well onto um, Catholic equivalents. I think there's clearly a ground for discussion there, even though there remain some points of difference. So I think that that is certainly a, a conversation that can be had. I think one of the most difficult issues is this. It is um, the gradual um, emergence of justification as the fulcrum of the Reformation. This is the big issue. And if you're wrong on this, you're wrong on everything, basically. And I think that, that, that it's the emphasis placed on justification, which I think is, is, is really quite interesting, because I certainly see that in Luther and many of Luther's allies, but I'm not sure I see it always in Reformed thinkers, who very often 
kind of way pay homage to the idea, but they don't seem to kind of way follow through into actualization of this in their theological systems. Yeah, um, I think uh, you you do document how there's even a decline in the usage of the term justification within Catholic circles as as time goes on. For instance, post Trent, um, and uh, it's, it's interesting to kind of think about how other images over time have uh, yeah are placed up alongside justification. And I think Protestants have gotten more comfortable with that as there's a lot of discussion in Protestant circles about theosis now, uh, for instance, uh, as a kind of a recovery of the Orthodox emphasis um, and you know of um, yeah alternative models as um, we can think about adoption ra- rather than maybe justification as as maybe an important. Um, alternative image, right, for understanding how uh, salvation works. So, yeah, I, I think that, that point is well taken. So, toward the end of the book, you discuss recent developments, uh, especially in Pauline, um, you know, scholarship. We're talking about Jimmy Dunn and, um, you know, N.T. Wright, uh, E.P. Sanders, obviously, earlier than that, Douglas Campbell from Duke, uh, and uh, uh, John Barclay uh, at Durham. Um, as you ponder um, the recent developments in Pauline scholarship, what do you think uh, what, which developments do you think are most promising for um, a positive step forward in our church's understanding of the doctrine of justification? Um, where, do you, where do you feel most hopeful, I guess, as you look at to see where recent scholarship has been and where it might be going? Um, where do you feel most hopeful for the church on, a, on coming ever closer to the truth with regard to justification? Well, let, let, me, let me answer that question in several ways. I think it's a very good question. One of the questions that I have often reflected on is whether, whether justification has ceased to be a significant matter of discussion. In other words, people are moving on using a different vocabulary. What I noticed particularly in preparing for this edition is it's still there in a big way. It really is um, a, a natural, a legitimate focusing point for many people across theological traditions. I find that very interesting. And certainly one of the key issues in this New Testament scholars you've mentioned, it's all, you know, what does justification mean? And also what role does it play? Is it the condition for being part of the people of God or is it a manifestation and, and things like that. I and mean, all those questions I think are very, very interesting. What, what I think I see emerging from these discussions is this, this deep feeling that what Paul is saying is enormously important and that maybe we, we, we've got to get them right. And that means graciously reviewing what others have said. In other words, making sure we're not trapped in an unhelpful way of thinking. So I I accept that point. But the point I make in response in this book is that actually, as I look over Pauline interpretation since, well, say 1800, you know, I'm not sure I see a consensus emerging. You know, I, I, I do see an ongoing debate. And I think one of the things I find myself coming away from this is to say, maybe we are not as a community of scholars going to be able to resolve all these questions, but individually we can say, I think I've sorted this out. Um, so I, I'm, I'm, what I'm saying is we have to learn to live with a degree of questions about some aspects of Paul's doctrine of justification, even though I think I can say with confidence, I can say there's something there that's really important. It's all about God's grace. It's all about, uh, it's wonderful. It's about what the gospel is. Uh, but I, I have to be aware that there are ongoing debates about some aspects of it. And the final point which I, I want to make, which again, I think is quite important, is that it's always good for systematic theology to be reminded that whether it likes it or not, 
It is based on biblical interpretation. And one of the things I have noticed is that in quite a few areas of theology, you have theological debate which simply doesn't engage with Scripture. And again, when I was reading Aquinas, I, I read his commentary on Romans. I was just so refreshed to see you know, this guy trying to, trying to make sure that what he said was grounded in the biblical text. Now, it's very reassuring. But I think today we very often see you know, biblical scholars there, um, systematic theologians there. And one of the things I think the doctrine of justification allows us to do is to say maybe these guys really need to talk to each other more, even though I realize that's a very hard thing to ask for. Yeah, one of the things it seems like you're pressing against is a, a simplistic, um, you know, kind of biblicist, historicist reading saying like, well, really, we just need to be good historians and we're going to get this all sorted out and then the church can come to a consensus on justification. And uh, you, you're not so optimistic, right? And you want to say, well, this is always going to involve theological or ideological judgments. Um, you know, that contextualize our historical investigations in such a way that we're not going to come to a determinate understanding of justification. Um, I guess my question is this, what, what hopes do you have then, or what resources do you want to suggest in terms of developing a robust, healthy hermeneutic? What are the best ways that we can make sure that we are trying to spiral toward the truth, right, and, and trying to get closer, and that we don't just end up in despair, saying we'll never, we'll never get a purchase on justification. Um, what, what sort of hermeneutic would you propose or historical resources would you propose as a way of conditioning our own hi historical um, limitations? Well, this is where you're asking me to get controversial. Um, so I, I, I will tell you what I think. And again, I emphasize this is just me saying, here's what I think. Uh, I'm not saying anybody else need to think this at all. But this, this is what I think. And again, it's very much the perspective of a historian who is also alert to theological issues. And it's this. Sometimes you go to the theologians in the past, and you try to figure out what they understood by this concept. And how does it relate to Paul? And that, that's a good way of doing it. But there's another way of doing it, which is to say, how do they actually use this idea? And what's so important about it for them? And when you begin to use that approach, actually, it starts to deliver some very good insights. Because, again, you know, if, if you compare um, Luther and the Council of Trent, and they, they are some distance apart from each other on quite a few questions, they're absolutely clear. This, this justification thing, it's really important. It, it's all about what makes people Christians or not Christians. It's all about hope. It's all about faith. It's all about growth and things like that. And I think that, that helps us to, to um, realize that um, there's something very important being conveyed by this term. And I think what we can do is to say, let's think of theologians as, in effect, offering us a lens to look at this and say, here's what we think. And, and then we go away and think, right, here's what I think. But you're, you're using these other lenses to try and help you wrestle with what this word means. Well, thank you so much, Alistair. I think that's a beautiful reflection. Uh, as you have obviously 40 plus years wrestling with this material, uh, I'm really I'm thankful that you've been willing to share your wisdom with me and with our audience. This is Matthew Bates for OnScript. Today's guest has been Professor Alistair McGrath. Uh, the book under discussion is Eustitia Dei, A History of the Christian Doctrine of Justification, now in its fourth edition from Cambridge University Press. Uh, Alistair McGrath is reticent to say this is the definitive treatment on justification, recognizing that 
there can be no final word, but I'm not hesitant. Um, in terms of the history of doctrine, uh, at least at this present horizon, this is the best. If you've never read it, do yourself a favor. Uh, or if you've encountered previous editions, you're going to want to check out this new fourth edition. There are links to the book on our website, onscript.study. Thanks, Alistair, and thanks to all our listeners. Thanks and goodbye. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study donate.